Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuwen Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at University of Helsinki, Finland. Join me today to talk about Myanmar jewelers in China. It's Juliet Zhu from Mahitong University in Thailand. Juliet is currently doing her postdoctoral research at Mahitong University in Thailand. She did her PhD in the same university. And in her PhD, she studied the Myanmar jewelers in China. I actually had the honor to be in her doctoral committee in the year 2022. So that was last year. And I'm very pleased that she has managed to continue her research after her doctoral study. So Juliet, can I ask you to briefly introduce yourself? Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Julian. Thank you for your very generous introduction. And also thank you for your invitation to this project. And so and so Arika to the audience of Nordic Asia podcast. And my name is Ju Tingshu. And you can always call me Juliet. And I do prefer Juliet. It's a great pleasure to have this opportunity to meet you and share with you some of my research insights and experiences. I am originally from China, but now I am based in Thailand at the Research Institute for Languages and Cultures of Asia, or ROCA, as how we conveniently call it. This institute belongs to Mahidong University. I used to be a PhD student at this institute, and as Professor Julie has introduced, my dissertation focuses on the Myanmar immigrants, more specifically speaking, the Myanmar jewelers. So the Myanmar immigrants who sell jade, ruby, sapphire, pearl, and as well as amber in Chinese border cities. So in that project, I raised the question as to how transnational migration and urban spatial reconfiguration or scaling define each other. And I argue that while the two processes are mutually constitutive, the extent and consequences of that interplay hinges fundamentally on local specificities such as geographical locations, geopolitical histories, and the very policy orientations of state and different local governments. So that's what I have done in the previous year. Well, thank you, Juliet. And now I should follow Sawadika. Well, I guess you are originally from this borderland area, right? Maybe you can tell us a bit about it and also the history of this particular group of jewelers in China. When did they arrive in China? How many are there? Maybe what has changed over the years? Yeah, so I so how to do that again. So I just learned that the very the Thai phrase is very useful. So okay, just give you like a brief like geographical orientation. I chose three cities in the border area to do my uh, PhD dissertation. So those cities scattered along the China Myanmar border. So they but they are not the area where the Mekong and Nantan River flows across. So it's like a little bit northward, like upwards. So near the what we call the Shreli River and so the Southern River. So it's like a little bit upwards. If we are talking about the history like of Myanmar jewelers in China, it is actually not that long because they only started to migrate from Myanmar to China in the 1980s. 
But in comparison, we have a longer history of consumption of jade in China, especially the precious stones from the Burmese kingdoms. The history of、uh, the consumption of Burmese jade and the other precious stones in China could be traced as far as back to the Ming and Qing dynasties, so roughly in the 17th and 18th centuries. But at that time, those precious stones from the Burmese kingdom were sent to the royal courts and to the elite classes, so they ended up as the personal. Connection and like a treasure for the the affluent classes, so they are not available for the common people in China. It was until the 1980s did the precious stones from Myanmar become a commodity for mass consumption, and it was also in this period that first generation of Myanmar jewelers arrived in China. And it was so because China ended the like a more than decade long. Political turmoil and economic stagnation, with the introduction of the reform and opening up policy in 1978. So under that policy, the borders are open to foreign travelers again. So that's how Myanmar jewelers could enter China again. And at the same time, the local governments on the Chinese side of the border responded very actively, and they took their own initiatives to activate border trade. And the final years of the 1970s and the Early years of the 1980s actually welcomed the first generations of of Myanmar jewelers, and I really think that the first generation of them are like adventurers because although at first there were just a few of them, and you can imagine that at that time the Chinese border cities were very poor. In comparison to their counterparts on the Burmese side of the border, and because of the long and economic and political instabilities, there was no urban infrastructure at that time. So you cannot find anything like a high building or a tarmac road or private cars or street lights. If you go near the border, so it's very poor, and you can or you can find, I think, just like dirt grounds and grassland, or maybe bamboo huts in near the border. The only road linking the border cities to the provincial capital at that time was like a slightly renovated version of the Burma Road, which is built during the Second World War.、It、used to be a like very poor area, but later on, with some local incentives and and、um, state policies, they developed very fast. But it was like just almost two decades later. Therefore, I think really the first generation of the Myanmar jewelers are like the true adventurers, setting foot on the virgin land, like waiting for them to. Explore. It was in the early 1990s that the local government, like they realized that the jewelry trade will be very beneficial to the local revenue, so they started to very proactively promote the construction of jewelry market. Some of them even positioned the jewelry trade as an, for instance, local economic pillar or a city rebranding strategy. So they expect that jewelry trade will not only benefit the local revenue, but it will benefit the other sectors. For instance, like real estate development, catering, and transportation. So they think that the transnational jewelry trade is not just a trade itself, but it has many linked, like constructive effects. What comes to my mind is you talk about these adventurers. They are the pioneers, so to say. Can they speak any Chinese when they enter China, or they learn along the way some some word? I think the first generation cannot speak Chinese at all when they first arrive, but they are really smart. They could learn very fast. When I was doing the interview with them, so most of them could speak a local dialect, like very fluently, like very like speak just like the natives. So they learn that language very fast after they enter China. So they are like very fast. 
and very smart. Do they eventually kind of settle down in China or mm-hmm. they still move back and forth between Myanmar and China? I have to say like both, especially those who settled down in China, they migrated to China in the early years, I mean, in the 1990s. So they, they have accumulated enough fortune to buy a house for something like a apartment room in, in, on the Chinese side of border. So they could uh, set up the family here and some of the families have extended into even the third generation. So they actually have a house and have a family in China, but uh, due to the nature, the very nature of the business, so they need to shuttle like very frequently between China and Myanmar in order to get enough supply and maybe to maintain the business network a little bit. So they both stayed in China for a long time, but they will travel back like very frequently as well. So it's like both. I assume that Chinese people as consumers are very interested in this kind of product. So it's not just sold in this borderland area, but it will, it is further sold to other parts of China, right? That's how the business grow. Am I right? There is a, a, this thing about travel restriction for most of them. I have to mention the thing about the border pass now, because most of them, I have to say like more than 95% or even 99%, no exaggeration, 99% of them are using what they call as the little red book. So it's like a border pass. The border pass is agreed upon by Chinese immigration authority and the Myanmar immigration authorities in 1997, like to allow the border residents to travel across border more freely. So they don't need to really apply for a visa every time. But that border pass only allowed them to stay in the border city. So they can't really go beyond that. So instead, they depend on their like partnership with Chinese traders who will help them to sell their products like beyond the territory of those border cities. So they have to depend on some Chinese partners in that case. Right. And that's how the business grow then. Do you know how many of them? I assume the number has changed, but roughly. There has been a huge change in terms of the number of that population. But and it's also very difficult to really give or to calculate very accurately how many are they. They don't use the visa or passport or all they need is like border pass. So when they apply for the border pass, they don't really need to state clearly what the purpose of the visit is. So they can enter China for a family visit, for instance. And later on, they, after they enter China, they can become a, a trader at the friends or family members jewelry store. So they become a jewelry trader only after that. Based on my field trip, I would like to say that the average number of this group could range from like 100,000 to 200,000 in 1990s and 2000s. But their number drops greatly since the early, since the early 2010s. Why? Why the number has dropped? There are a few reasons. First of all, there is this very massive anti-corruption campaign in China ever since the 2010s. They have lost some of their biggest buyers due to that, that campaign. And the business just dropped very like greatly. And then there is this uh, thing called Belt and Road Initiative. So Belt and Road Initiative actually positions the borderlands as like a frontier for industrial development and for urbanization. So a lot of factories set up their like their branches near the borderline. They offer more opportunities to the Myanmar immigrants. So the Myanmar immigrants don't really need to work as jewelers, but they can also find some alternative options as working 
working in a factory or working in a restaurant, working at a construction site. So they have more options, which will be actually more stable for them. So they can sign a contract and they can get a monthly salary. The best thing about signing a contract you can, is that you can get a letter of guarantee from your employer so that you can apply for a local residence permit, which will allow you to stay in China for like up to one year. Beyond Road Initiative benefit a lot for them, for their long-term prospect living in China. There are very complicated factors, like um, you have to say which group uh, specifically. The Batman Real Initiative offers more job opportunities, and they could get the Myanmar immigrants who work for a company or work for a business, like a stable business, to stay in China for the long term. But for the Myanmar jewelers, it's another picture because the Batman Real Initiative actually have stimulated a surge of domestic migration from the other provinces in China to the border city. So those people who migrated are actually the young people in China. They know the digital skills to do live streaming trade. So they later on become live streaming hosts in the jewelry trade. So that means there is this huge competition between Chinese traders and the uh, the Myanmar jewelers. Since the Myanmar jewelers are not that good at doing like digital trade and live streaming trade, they are like pushed to the margins of the market. And at the same time, because those Myanmar jewelers are very often like freelancers, so they are self-employed. So they don't really have a channel to get the letter of guarantee for them to like to stay a little bit longer in the border cities. The Bellarial Initiative has different impacts on different groups of immigrants. Right. So maybe it gives the young Chinese people more employment opportunity in this domain, yes. but then the Myanmar jewelers were lacking the digital skill and perhaps lacking Chinese, so it, it becomes really difficult for them. I have to say that live streaming is like a very promising industry and it gives like the youngsters many opportunities to accumulate a, a huge fortune. But for the Myanmar jewelers, it's like not promising at all because in the first place, they have difficulties using the social media apps in China because those, like if you want to register for accounts, those social media apps, you need to use some the personal information based on the passport and visa. So most of them are using the border pass which is not applicable to those social media platforms. And that's the first problem. And then they are not really familiar with the, like, the trends in live streaming. I have noticed that during my few trips, those Myanmar immigrants prefer the other social media apps that could not be legally used in China, such, such as like Facebook, Twitter and Line. So they will buy the VPN service. So they call the VPN service like letter. So the letter to allow them to climb across the the digital wall and to see the world outside. So they are not familiar with the live streaming trend because all the social media apps for live streaming are like a new continent for them. Also, as you have mentioned, the language barriers, although they can speak the dialect, but like speaking and listening and writing fluently to that kind of proficiency, which you can like interact with the viewers very quickly and timely, even in some very amusing way is another issue, right? It's more difficult. For Chinese consumers, what kind of platform do they use? Is it WeChat? They use a lot of them now. It's like TikTok. There are a lot of like professional live streaming companies nowadays. So they have their 
own platforms. So they develop their own platforms. So they can control the volume. And I have visited those like the live streaming companies. They have even the what they call as a traffic package, which you can buy, so that the company will use the technology to boost the the views. There are more viewers. So it's like you have more viewers, you have more buyers. It's like the kind of service the live streaming companies will offer to you as a trader. I can imagine the COVID nineteen pandemic must have influenced even further of those Myanmar jewelers. Border crossing becomes difficult. Could you tell us about that situation? I think it's like a wow, it's very very saddening story because during the pandemic, it's like although I have to say the infection rate of COVID nineteen is actually very low in the border areas, but ever since April two thousand twenty, the provincial government has ordered the closure, the complete closure of the borders, uh, like for three years consecutively. They not only closed the border, but also they or like locked down the borders. Cities very often, like they will order like a lockdown for perhaps a few months and open up the cities for a few weeks and lockdown again. And during those lockdowns, the the markets, of course, and including the jewelry markets, are closed off as well. So there is no business for them at all for three years, like almost like nothing. I think like more than ninety percent of them have no better option but to leave. So they relocate back to Myanmar. I had lost connections with most informants. During this period as well, so it's like not promising for them at all, and they don't know when this will end. Even though the Chinese government has like removed the border closures on January eighth, two thousand twenty three, but in the first few weeks of January, the Myanmar side of the border and the Myanmar of immigration authorities just refused to open the border because of their deep concerns over the infection spikes in China right now. So I really hope that things will get better soon because now the infection curve in China is now more steady. Perhaps after that, the Myanmar immigration authority will think it will be okay to open the border again. I can imagine while the COVID pandemic maybe is really devastating for the Myanmar jewelers business, but it probably it was an opportunity for those who are very good at doing live streaming already, right? They can use just online sales instead of having to present their product on site. Well, what is the situation for those who are doing the live streaming? Is it becoming a booming business? Because the live streaming still depends on the supply of goods from Myanmar. It still、ah. depends on the transnational mobility of people and goods. So I know that there are some people who go back to Myanmar to do live streaming, but it's like they don't have the kind of technological support from the Chinese companies, and they don't have those institutional or technological supports. On the Chinese side of the border, so it's still more difficult for them. It's not a better option actually. So everyone is waiting for the the traffic across the border to resume. Like everyone is still waiting. Like just hopefully, like in the maybe a few weeks or maybe in one in one month, it will be better and better for them. This also thing about the power structure between the Chinese traders and the Myanmar jewelers. In the previous years, the Chinese traders have dominated the jewelry market and they control almost all the sales and the market, both of online and offline. 
as a result, it's like the tilted ground for Myanmar traders. That is to say, they are altogether becoming more dependent on the Chinese traders. Sometimes they they are hired by the Chinese traders or the live streaming hosts as like a performer. So the performer with a quote with quotation marks. So in those live streaming trades, don't have to be or they can't be the real jewelry traders who can decide how to sell the product. But they are required to interact with the Chinese traders like in certain manners. Because it was like a pre-orchestrated、uh, performance, like a staged performance, they could like interact with each other, like verbally or even physically fighting in amusing ways, or like they could talk with each other in a very romantic ways. So it's like they are boyfriend or girlfriend, or they simply just play some pranks. All those things are designed for attracting viewers. So live streaming is about attention. When I talk about this, I can't like resist talking about this funny aspect. So we know that among those Myanmar jewelers, there there is those Chinese Myanmar immigrants, right? So the Chinese Myanmar traders, meaning the the Myanmar immigrant traders with a Chinese family background, so they are not favored by the Chinese live streaming hosts. Because they don't look foreign enough, the Chinese traders will prefer this kind of look with the typical Southeast Asian appearance. So, so it looks more to... exotic, is it? Yeah, yeah. So you have to look foreign enough. You look, you have to look Burmese enough. Because those appearance is like commercialized by the Chinese traders as a validation of the jewelry's quality and authenticity. They will will say like, okay, the seller, I mean the performer, now it's like he looks Burmese, he is Burmese, so what he's selling must be authentic Burmese. So how important is the source of Myanmar jewelries compared with all kinds of gems that you can find in China or other parts of the world? Is this the main source where Chinese people get the product? Yes, it's like the main and only one that Chinese people will cherish because of both like long like historical cultural appreciation of the kind of product, but also because of the commercialization of the Burmese jade. That throughout the past three decades, people have this idea like. The jade from Burma is of superior、uh, quality, and it has a limited quantity. And it, if you can't buy it right now, it might just become more expensive or just disappear in another day. So it's like Chinese people have this urge to buy the 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 jade from Myanmar. So you study those、uh, jewelers in your doctoral research. How about your postdoc? Is it a continuation of the past research? It could be、uh, from a certain perspective because、uh, when I was writing about the transnational migration of Myanmar jewelers, actually in in the dissertation, I was focusing more on the spatial aspect of that migration because when I, you can see that I was doing something or、uh, talking about something about like urban space or spatial reconstruction, so help those stuff. But when I was like、uh, revising the final drafts, I start to realize the significance of time in migration. So, for instance,、uh, when I was doing a survey with the Myanmar jewelers, I have realized that the Myanmar jewelers arriving in the Chinese cities in different historical periods are experiencing the city and its their changes. I mean, the urban dynamics in quite distinctive ways. Those things are not just emotional or invisible, but they are like affects that will directly shaping their decisions and shaping their eventually the migratory trajectories. Right. So it has very material consequences. So that helps me to to think more critically about time. So if we take time for granted. 
then it would seem like that we are or they are living in the same period. So we are contemporaneous. So we are co-living in this same moment. Say maybe, for instance, January 2023 or August 2024. But if we take time more critically, then it's not difficult to see that we are not actually living in the same temporal frames or the horizons, the temporal backgrounds or conditions or the family histories that a person lives in is like as important as functions or the significance of space. Uh, so I think that time and space should not be separated when we are doing like a research like this. And but very often you can see that we only look at the spatial aspects of migration, right? So time is mentioned, but it is kept as a contextual background against which we organize our data. For instance, we use a timeline or a historical lineage when describing a series of events. But its role in shaping those data is not given enough attention. So I would like to argue. So I'm currently working on a piece of uh, like more theoretically oriented writing on the concept of uh, concept and role of time in migration. I will be working on that by using some previous data that I have collected in combination with newer research projects that look more specifically at the domestic migrants in China. So in a way, your doctoral research is continuing and is going to fending. And, and that's very good because I think uh, the story hasn't ended yet. In fact, there are many aspects that uh, probably uh, we can still look deeper into it. And I'm also thinking now we, we have been talking about these jurors as a collective group. But as you brought the special and then the temporal dimension, you realize, in fact, they can not be collective group. It's like the different groups will have different family backgrounds and they will have different attitudes towards the border cities and they have different imaginations of the border cities and of their futures as well. So when we were like interrogating their uh, migration stories or histories or narratives, so it will be very helpful and constructive if we could dig a little deeper into the temporal aspects. Thank you very much, Julia, for sharing your insights with us. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, me, Julie Yuan Chen from Helsinki, and then Juliet from Mahidong University in Thailand. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.